Hi, my name is Mary Doherty, and I'm a member of the Chicago Society of Union Analysts. And I'm here today with my colleague, George Hoganson, who is also a member of the Chicago Society of Union Analysts. And I'm very delighted to have this conversation with George that we can share with you about the upcoming opera, The Ring Cycle by Richard Wagner at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. And he is going to be giving a lecture prior to the fourth opera. And George, I'm wanting you to share with me and with our audience about your long involvement in Wagner's work and, and, and in The Ring Cycle itself. Well, thank you, Mary. Yes, uh, I've been involved with studying Wagner's work for, uh, as I calculated now, almost 40 years. I first saw The Ring Cycle in 1980, and uh, it has fascinated me ever since. And as a Jungian analyst, I would say that it is amongst all of the operas uh, that one can, uh, can see in, in, in the musical world, it is perhaps among the most, if not the most, uh, Jungian and uh, archetypal of all of the operas that I'm familiar with. So we'll be taking up uh, in this instance uh, the fourth of the four uh, operas that constitute Wagner's Ring Cycle. Uh, we've gone through the Rheingold, the Valkyrie, and Siegfried, and now we come to the conclusion, which is the Gotterdammerung. Uh, Gotterdammerung, of course, uh, refers to the twilight of the gods, the end of the reign of the gods. And uh, what we will be seeing here is the conclusion of what has been a long running story having to do with uh, Wotan's attempts to set right the world that were dis after its disruption uh, by both his greed and, and other, act other actions that took place very early on in the Rheingold, the first of the operas. Well, George, I'm really looking forward to your lecture. I just want to share that I attended the other lectures before hearing these uh, first three operas. And I have to say that uh, your lecture was quite a gift to me because I, it gave me an understanding of the story so that when I went into the opera itself, I could really hear and listen to the music with depth. And uh, so the, having this lecture before the opera is a real gift, I think, to all our members of the Institute, the Jung Institute, as well as other uh, opera goers who can also sign up for your lecture. Yes, well, there are two, there are two uh, principal aspects to understanding the opera. One is, of course, simply what the portrayal is, the dramatic course through uh, the operas from the original uh, arrangements that Wotan, the king of the gods, and Alberich, the dwarf, in their contest to gain control of the gold of the ring from the Rhine maidens. That's where things begin. Mm -hmm. And they set in motion a series of increasingly tragic events that take place as the contest between these figures unfolds through time. The other, so it's very important, and what I seek to do in, in giving my part of the lectures mm -hmm. here is to outline what the storyline actually is. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect that is singularly important for Wagner's work is the role that his music plays. And that's actually going to be taken up by a representative of the lyric opera, Colin Lure, who uh, gives an excellent overview of what, how the musical patterns 
unfold in the opera. And he'll be doing that uh, in the uh, lyric opera uh, itself prior to the opera performance, but following the lecture that, that yes. I'll be giving. So we'll have those two aspects. One is to unfold the story and to tie it into the larger mythological traditions that underlie it and that constitute the archetypal dimension of Wagner's operas. And it is, in fact, my hope that given the, that introduction to the, the story and the mythology, that the music will play a greater role in a person's experience of the opera. Well, that, is, that has been my experience, and uh, I uh, really recommend uh, hearing both lectures uh, uh, to fully engage the magnitude of this opera. Uh, George, how do we find out about getting tickets to this opera and to your lecture? Well, the Institute does have a small number, a limited number of seats available on the main floor of the Lyric Opera. And you can go to the Young Institute website at youngchicago.org and find information on acquiring tickets through the Institute. It's a limited number that's available. And those are selling for $225 a piece, which is a discount off of the regular price for a main floor seats of $279. That's if you have tickets already, and some people do, yeah. who are regular mm -hmm. attendees at the Lyric Opera, you can come to my lecture for a fee of $25, which you can secure also through the Jung Institute website. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would then be in addition to your having your own tickets available for the opera. As we enter a new year, it seems right to share the recording of the program, The Fate of Deaf Psychology in the New Millennium, held in 1998. It includes introductory remarks by June Singer and a lengthy discussion with panel and audience members from the original CD jacket. As we approach the year 2000, humanity finds itself, as it always will, wrestling with the eternal questions of the meaning of existence and their relationship to spirit and matter. Given the direction of contemporary brain research and science, the growing psychopharmacological approach to mental and emotional disorders, the emergence of managed care, and the economics of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, we have to wonder what challenges depth psychology will face in the years ahead. This program takes up this critical question as seven Jungian analysts share their individual visions of the fate that awaits depth psychology in the new millennium. The panel members each present a brief synopsis of his or her vision and then engage with the audience in a lively discussion of their ideas, reactions, and intuitions. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background on how this program came into existence, uh, some of you know, as I see faces that were here last night, that yesterday was June Singer's 80th birthday. And when we decided didn't really have to decide when we planned to honor her for that 
milestone, uh, we decided also that we'd like to do a program in her honor and asked her to choose the topic. So this program is uh, June's creation. And she suggested that we have some senior analysts on our panel and some of our newer analysts on the panel to give a, a mix of points of view. So that's what you have up here. I'm going to introduce them uh, all together, uh, one by one, just by name, because I don't want to be up here using up the precious time. So this is Bob Moretti, Sue Rosenthal. Dan Lindley is going to be in that chair, we hope. Uh, Lucy Klein, Lee Roloff, and Mary Loomis. And the way the program will work is after June Singer makes some opening remarks, then they will follow one on the other. We've asked them to try to be close to a 10-minute limit, so that'll give us about an hour of uh, hearing their different ideas about what the fate of depth psychology will be, and uh, then we will take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll have questions and discussion and so on, and then that'll be followed by lunch. Uh, I guess that that's it. Oh, one other thing that I want to want to mention to you all is that you see uh, that the uh, austere and uh, remarkable visage of the master is over here in the corner overlooking the uh, entire proceedings, and that was a gift to us on her birthday from June Singer. She painted that portrait herself. And so you can, at the break or whatever, get a closer look at it if you want, but we're delighted to have it. It'll find a, a different spot, but we thought it would be appropriate to have him in back of the panel uh, this morning. So June, do you want to come up and lead us off? I feel very strange with him looking over my shoulder, but I'll try not to be too trembly. When I suggested the topic, uh, the fate of depth psychology in the new millennium, I figured that would be appropriate because uh, here at the Jung Institute, I'm a part of the history, part of the past. Well, every organization has past, as does every person. Trouble is, we get stuck in the past. The past is part of us. One of the tasks of psychology is to pull us out of the quagmire of the past and free us to go forward in time. But too often, we're held back by old attachments, like attachments to unwholesome relationships, to the way things have always been done, to the wise words of an old teacher who was an inhabitant of another time and another place. Sorry, Carl. When we were young, we needed guidance and structure. In our maturity, we need to take responsibility for ourselves. The task of this moment, it seems to me, is to move gently away from the past and forward into the future. And that's a daunting task. So we invent a new millennium. It's one of the ways the human animal has of persuading himself or herself that a new start is needed. Uh, the philosopher and scientist Stephen Jay Gould has a new book out called Questioning the Millennium. He questions the millennium. The millennium literally means a thousand years, and that is a fact. But when the millennium occurs, when it occurs, is a matter of interpretation. We, in our Christian majority uh, culture, count the thousand years from the presumed date of the birth of Jesus 
as a millennium. But according to the Jewish calendar, two years from now it will be the year 5760. Jews, traditional Jews, reckon their time from the tradition that the world was created more than five millennia ago. And contemporary scientists and uh, researchers into religion have determined that Jesus was in fact born four years BC, uh, which when you think about it, we've already passed the millennium. That was two years ago. <laughs> other cultures reckon the number of years in other ways. But all these blocks of time are interpretations. And I think it's very important to differentiate between facts and interpretations. And I'll tell you why in a little while. A year is the time it takes for the Earth to revolve around the sun. That's an observable fact. But a month is loosely related to the cycles of the moon around the Earth, but not exactly. Because it's also a way of our dividing uh, the year into bite-sized pieces. And different cultures uh, interpret the idea of the month differently. For instance, the Jewish in the Jewish calendar, the months are just about the same in the number of days, but every year or two or three or four, I don't know exactly which, an extra month is thrown in to use up the extra days. So months really are an interpretation. So are weeks. We settled on a seven-day week based on the old adage, the Bible tells me so. We interpret the seven days in which God was said to have created the earth to mean that the uh, year is divided into sevenths. It could just as well be divided into tenths or twelfths or any number you can think of. Weeks are not based on natural phenomena that we can observe. That's a fact but that we believe the year is naturally divided into weeks is our interpretation. Are you with me? In the field of depth psychology, more than any place I can think of, it's absolutely essential to differentiate between fact and interpretation because depth psychology is a psychology of interpretation. Depth psychology more or less originated with the publication of Freud's book in 1900 the interpretation of dreams. He didn't present his remarks as facts. And dreams surely are an ephemeral experience. Some we recall, so others evaporate before we awaken. That's a fact. No one would deny it because everyone has experienced personally the phenomenon of dreaming. But what we ourselves make of dreams, how we interpret them, is one of the basic foundations of depth psychology. Now, at the Jung Institute in Zurich, I had to pass an examination before I could graduate on the interpretation of dreams. Even then, we had to jump through hoops. You can bet your boots that I had to interpret a dream as Carl Jung would have interpreted it. And I did. And then the analyst diploma came along, and then later on, a paper stating that I had been awarded a PhD in another paper entitling me to practice uh, psychology independently, all made it possible for me to diverge from the classical Jungian method I had learned so uh, carefully and laboriously, and to modify it on the basis of my own in observations. As I grew in my analytic work, I relied less and less on interpretation and more and more on my observations. I would observe the analysand's behavior in body language and energy flow and facial expression and voice 
And all the other things that I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears, those were the facts on which I based my interpretations. So what does all this long pre preamble have to do with the subject of death psychology in the new millennium? Well, first, it shows us that we don't need to take the idea of the new millennium too seriously. It's not a fact. It's our society's interpretation of the need for a change, a new day dawning. Jung's theories, or anyone else's theories for that matter, don't need to be taken as facts, as the way things are. They are one person's interpretation of observed phenomena. When we meet with a new situation, especially if we are therapists, or with a new person, we must be very careful not to wrap that person or that situation in the cloak of anybody's theory and imagine then that we understand that person. We, know, we may know a great deal about people in general, but the person before us knows more about himself or herself than we can ever know because we have not the personal experience of being that person. So it's our job <clears throat> to observe closely and to listen carefully rather than to judge. The intellect is a judge. The artist is a perceiver. We need both in the art and science of depth psychology. But unless we perceive first and discover what is there, there is no way we can make a valid judgment. Someone told me recently that she had heard a talk by a former Prime Minister of Israel, Shimon Peres, that old war hawk, talking about boundaries. And he said, the only way to be secure is to have your neighbor fulfilled. He's learned a lot over the years, perhaps from his battle scars, and he's become a figure of inner wisdom. Perez also said, you have to see what is in the future. This speaks for intuition. That's a way to gain information. The unconscious is perfectly capable of piecing together what consciousness perceives and making sense of it. So we need to trust our intuition. But we need also to check it with what we have observed. I have found in my life that trust builds trust. Suspicion breeds suspicion. Hate generates hate and love cultivates love. The pessimist says things are in such a mess, there's nothing I can do about it. And he's right. The optimist says the world is full of opportunities that I can use to make things better. The optimist is absolutely right too. How we interpret what we see determines what we will do with it. So I think that depth psychology needs to throw away much of the outdated stuff from the past that clutters our vision. Old enmities, stubborn belief systems, the unwillingness to consider a new idea, clinging to what has been comfortable in the past, figuring out how we can win at the price of another's loss. Meditators are right. Clear out the chatter and listen in silence. Find out what people, including yourself, really need not what they want, what they need. If the old ways or even the current ways are not moving people toward a more integrated and wholesome life, then what do they need to take a new path? Don't tell them, ask them. Elicit the information from them. Regard their experience with respect 
as they are very real as experiences. They are facts. And if you interpret them in a way that may or may not be helpful, remember that yours is only one of an unlimited number of possible interpretations. So offer them with humility. Many new ways are open to all of us in the new millennium. So let's look at the facts and our various interpretations and our fantasies of what yet may be. I will turn the mic over now to our first speaker, Bob Moretti. Bob Moretti. Good morning. For much of my career, I've spent um, time affiliated with or teaching within departments of psychiatry in medical schools, even though I'm trained as a psychologist. And so I wanted to aim some of my remarks in that direction, since um, it is such a prominent piece of the mental health landscape. And I think we're going to be seeing some very significant change. I'm going to start out talking about some things that I think are rather concrete and uh, moving to things that I think are more general. Also, the concrete things I think are easier to predict. There's a lot of talk about the managed care industry in mental health, and I think what we will see is that the managed care industry is going to collapse of its own weight. Indeed, this is already starting to happen, uh, requiring larger and larger mergers for insurers to survive. Eventually, there'll be a single insurer, probably the government, as in many Western countries. But that doesn't mean that analysis will be a covered service. In fact, I feel almost certain it will not be. Covered forms of psychotherapy will be those targeted towards specific syndromes with effectiveness demonstrated to exceed that of other forms. Essentially, these will be paint-by-the-numbers, short-term therapies. Practitioners will be required to chart how each session was spent directly targeting the syndrome being treated. So I see an increasing split between structured forms of psychotherapy and what we know as depth psychology. Perhaps this is as it should be. When analysis came to the United States from Europe, it sold its soul to the devil in order to win acceptance. That is, analysis wedded itself to medicine in the United States, and so became medicalized with all that that implied. You know, the bastions of psychoanalysis in the United States have been the departments of psychiatry up until very recently in medical schools. This medicalization, most importantly, implied that analysis was about curing people rather than healing. Healing means to make whole again and may or may not have much to do with symptom reduction. Healing or making whole involves the discovery of meaning. In the new millennium, analysis will be seen as separate from these more medicalized forms of psychotherapy. There will be no insurance support for it, not because it isn't an important endeavor, but because the government will not directly support the spiritual quests of its citizens. So the issue of funding analysis will remain problematic. But I don't think that the demand for this kind of work will be much reduced, except perhaps temporarily. As the public becomes aware of the limitations of the insurance-sanctioned treatments through their personal experience, I think they will seek out depth psychologists, as they have for so many decades, even before insurance coverage was available. I also think we'll probably be seeing analysts moving into new forms of work. And I think some of those work 
uh, some of those uh, locations for the work will be in organizations and in groups. This is something that sounds um, kind of foreign in a way to um, most Jungians because Jung was so suspicious of group work, fearing that the group would suppress the individuality of its members. Um, and certainly that would be something we'd have to remain conscious of. But I, some Jungians are already moving out and doing organizational work, including analysts in our own society. Within a decade or two in the new millennium, I anticipate that there will be medications that effectively control or eliminate the symptoms of common disorders, such as anxiety, depression, bipolar illness, and even schizophrenia, all without major side effects. This is already rapidly beginning to happen as psychiatry is increasingly capable of identifying specific receptor sites in the brain and the substances that bind to them. But when these very effective medications without side effects become available, we'll be at a potential turning point. For the suffering engendered by emotional distress has actually been a major vehicle by which analytical psychologists have helped analyzands find or create meaning in life. Our suffering leads us to ask the all-important question, why? So what will happen when we can take away the symptoms of such distress completely with medications? When one can take a pill to effectively eliminate emotional disorder, what will be the role of depth psychology? Will analysis face an identity crisis? I don't believe so. Even the easy life, the healthy life, the secure life are not free from issues of meaning. Indeed, our very comfort can cause us to feel restless, can cause us to ask, what now? Is this all there is? The archetype of meaning will not be denied. We cannot medicate away the fact of our eventual death and the questions it raises about why and how we live. I've already witnessed some of this in depressed patients who experience marked alleviation of symptoms through currently available antidepressants like Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft. As these patients begin to feel better, they also sometimes feel odd, as if they no longer know themselves so well. They feel less hampered by symptoms, but uneasy about the change that now lies ahead in their lives. What will be chosen? Who will they be? <coughs> These questions, which are fundamentally about meaning, will not disappear from our lives, and I do not anticipate that there will be a pharmaceutical remedy for them. As analysis becomes freed from its unhappy marriage with medicalized forms of psychotherapy, the transpersonal aspects of our work will become more widely discussed and will be recognized as a central feature of what analysts do and are known for doing. After all, the concept of the transpersonal helps us to understand the most striking, mysterious experiences that we have as human beings. Things such as precognitive dreams, synchronicity, experiencing something in the present moment that's happening to somebody else far away, and numinous or holy experiences. Medicine and professional psychology have long been largely dismissive of the transpersonal arguing that science does not find evidence to support such notions. How keenly ironic this is. For the science that helps us understand the transpersonal dimensions of existence is quantum physics, the most advanced and most revolutionary of the physical sciences. The paradox of supposedly modern scientists refusing to consider the implications of the most modern findings of physics is intriguing, to say the least. 
It seems that even scientists, such as those in medicine and in psychology, are quite reluctant to consider the implications of quantum physics with respect to everyday experience. But I anticipate that this will change in the new millennium, that quantum physics will become a more widely known, even common topic of discourse, at least in a general sense. And we will be ready to consider the implications, namely, that all phenomena are interconnected and indeed inseparable. We are not the totally separate identities that we imagine ourselves to be. This will echo what Jung said long ago when he posited a self that existed within each individual psyche but that was not confined to it. Even now, not only those within analytical psychology, but physical scientists as well, have already begun to explore the idea that consciousness is not something local in the individual, but something that transcends the individual. Many people are unaware that the National Institutes of Health set up a section on alternative medicine a few years back. The individual appointed to head that branch was Dr. Larry Dossey, a major proponent of the idea that consciousness is not local. So here we have a major governmental funding agency with a section headed by an individual who proposes that consciousness is not local. So we're not so far away from this as we might imagine. I expect this idea to become a prominent, widely discussed, actively investigated scientific hypothesis within the next 20 years. And while we've been interested in the boundaries of the soul for a long time, essentially we will finally be researching the boundaries of the soul with the methods of science as well. The importance of this endeavor can't be overstated. Our evolutionary past has left us saddled with the problem of the archetypal shadow. We are born with a powerful tendency to distinguish between ourselves and others and to even project our own untamed animal qualities onto others as a justification for eliminating them and giving us access to limited resources. At its core, the whole of human conflict with other humans traces back to the boundaries we erect between ourselves and others. If humanity is to endure, we will need to come to grips directly with this problem. The charting of the transpersonal nature of our existence in the next millennium can serve as a powerful counterbalance to the archetypal shadow by teaching us that our boundaries are not as we believe them to be. Thank you. I'll turn the microphone over next to our next speaker, Lucy Klein. I had to laugh when I look at the order in which Peter had us speak. And I thought, isn't that great? He really knows what I'm going to talk about, the union of opposites, because he's got listed a thinking type, a feeling type, a thinking type, a feeling type, as <laughs> you go down. So uh, Bob was a thinker, and I'm the feeler. So we'll, uh, in, in dominance, we should say. Of course, we all have all of them. But in my fantasy, the fate of depth psychology the opposites in the psyche are coming closer together in consciousness as the soul continues to evolve. As the opposites become closer, they may unite on some level for a moment, resulting in a new birth, maybe even a new universe. As we go ever deeper into psyche, perhaps we will discover more and more universes. As we are discovering the, these today, in the outer world or in the physical world. 
Perhaps we will grow towards a harmony of the spheres as the shadow feeds us more knowledge of ourselves. At least we will grow more tolerant of each other as, we, as the shadow reveals the other side of each of us. Some people may see the need for depth psychology in an analytical setting to diminish or even to disappear in the new millennium. But I believe that as long as there is an I, we will always require a thou. Dialogue will continue to be essential. Perhaps communication will be different, even beyond verbal expression. There have been incidents of a closer coming together in events reported in the newspapers. While I was growing up in a small town in the South, there was always a big upheaval whenever a Methodist married a Presbyterian. <laughs> For each believed that their doctrine was the only way to salvation. The distance between Presbyterians and Methodists was not nearly as great as the distance in the other world besides Tupelo, Mississippi, as the distance there between Catholics and Lutherans in other parts of the world. Yet recently we've had newspaper articles like the one in the New York Times on June 26, 1998, in which the heading states, the Vatican settles a historic issue with Lutherans after a 500-year split. It concerns the issue of salvation through grace or justification. On September 11, in the Chicago Tribune, there's a report entitled, The Wall Between Science and Faith Will Crumble. On October the 16th in the Chicago Tribune, there's an article with a heading, Pope argues that faith and reason must intertwine. Nature and spirit, the supreme opposites, were surely growing closer together, and if some people have suggested, may even be the same. In the New York Times on August 16th, in the book section, is a review of a book called Open-Minded, Working Out the Logic of the Soul. I've not yet the book, but in the review, Mark Edmondson answers the criticism that psychoanalysis does not cure. He suggests that we should use another name or another approach for the mentally ill. He believes we should limit deep psychological or analytical work to those who are mentally healthy but want to grow and change, as Bob Moretti has mentioned today. Hopefully, as the new millennium approaches, we will continue to work on our relationships with people. Now, dream interpretation has been going on for a long, long time. Even in ancient Egypt, in ancient Greece, there was Epidaurus, where people would come for healing and for growth and evolution. They would come and present their dream. They did group dream work, they did dancing, they did music, and they knew about the Mozart effect, which is a recent book, long before uh, we did, of course. Um, for a while, while I was in analysis, I went through a transition period where I was working with a woman and a man at the same time. And um, I would take some of my dreams to the woman, and I'd take some of my dreams to the man. And one day, the trickster archetype within me had, to t had me take the same dream to both. 
I was amazed to get two completely different interpretations. So then I thought, well, I could have my view. What would my interpretation of this be? So as uh, Bob mentioned, that may take place, and perhaps in the new millennium there will even be group interpretation of dreams. So um, as I say, nature and spirit are the same. Thank you. Dan Lindley. Analytical psychology is a celebration of becoming. I believe that the image for becoming is the child. And I propose that in this image is to be found our future and the hope of our work. I've been thinking about the child as reality, as image, and as archetype for some time now. This is because I am working on connections I have with my own childhood home a house on the Connecticut shore where my mother still lives and where she and her parents spent each summer after her 12th birthday, where my father courted her, where my grandmother and my parents and I and my children made four generations together year after year. A house in which I have spent at least a part of every one of the 64 summers since the year after my birth. And this returning and returning of mine, I see now, has its parallel in our work, in the ongoing and returning pattern of analysis. I go through the front door of my mother's house and I am surrounded by a slightly sweet, slightly musty atmosphere that has never changed. I walk into my analyst's office and sit down and begin to enter a timeless realm, sealed off from ordinariness, from the press of things and obligations. Or a person in my practice finds my office inhabited by her past, the same constant atmosphere, the same air laden with projection and memory and image. I walk into the summer house and, if the door to the terrace is open, I can feel the salt breeze from the sound and I can hear small waves breaking and dissolving into foam among the tangles of seaweed and rocks that line the shore just below the house. In the space of analysis, the sea, the tides, the wind, the sun rising and setting are the rhythms underneath the work. We go out and we return from dark to light to dark. A child such as I was, returning each summer to the same place, becomes lost in sameness. I made my own time as an only child will because my parents had their own life, more fun and more rewarding for them than a small boy was. So I created a world for myself and then lived in it quite happily. What I was missing went into the dark in the ways you all know so well. Time stopped and the moment of the house stretched out. The past of school, of schedules was gone, and the future became unnecessary or irrelevant all summer long. As in analysis, a dream is constellated from a timeless place. It hangs timelessly in the air between two people. It may excite or frighten or seem crazily useless. It may open a deep space we fall into, a shock, the surprise of the utterly new. In the house, a storm, in fact a hurricane in 1938, shook the walls. Wind and rain stripped the leaves from the trees and plastered the south side of the house with them. A gigantic willow tree fell. Gales peeled shingles off the roof and water streamed into the attic and then from bedroom and living room ceilings. Waves and the high tide bent the terrace doors and seawater washed through the front hall. We could not hear ourselves over the voices in the wind. The storm passed. The repairs were made. The house, like Psyche itself, is both unchanging and vulnerable, safe and threatened, moving and unmoved. 
I, the child, in the timeless realm of summer, dropped into the timeless archetypal ground. But that same child, growing and exploring in this unvarying space, found himself caught up in the inexorable flow of time, represented by learning to swim, learning to ride a two-wheeler, learning to drive, to kiss. One summer, an aunt, sleeping peacefully, died. A few summers later, my grandfather, surrounded by medicines and IVs, died in another upstairs room. Years later, when my father, a lover of landscapes and gardens, lay dying in that same room, he could see, outside his window, a maple tree I'd just had planted for him. It flourishes now, shading the terrace. Oh, as I was young and easy under the apple boughs, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. So, in our work, we go in and out of time, and thus in every session the child in us experiences both inexorable change and eternal presences. Each year I grew older, but each year the tide pools among the rocks filled and emptied. Each year the sun set into the sound beyond Griswold Island or Hatchet's Point. And each year, in the gathering darkness, the herring gulls and the black-crowned night herons squawked their nightly choruses from distant rocks and from a rookery on a nearby hill, shrieking in unison and then quieting mysteriously, only to start again. Each year, lying in the dark with the bedroom window open for the sea air, I listened and wondered. In our work, we descend into such dark, timeless realms, and we return to the mundane daylight. We provide a place where this is safe and indeed honored work. We provide the safety of return together with the threat and the reality of moving towards something as yet unknown to us and to the people with whom we work. We enter training to find these things out for ourselves with necessary help. Tennyson's Ulysses speaks to us. Something ere the end, some work of noble note may yet be done. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes, the slow moon climbs, the deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which in the old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. And here's T.S. Eliot describing a world both inner and other, a world to be forever explored. The river is within us. The sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. Home is where one starts from. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated of dead and living. Here and there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion through the dark cold and the empty desolation. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. We know these things. This is what we honor in our work. We provide a space both safe and hazardous, known and unknown, all at once, a space charged with all the contradictions and opposites, but nevertheless humane and sympathetic, a space in which the gestures and images of the inner life are honored and sustained, the whole informed by an idea of order. It is the space we deserved as children, but seldom, if ever, had. Such a space has unmeasurable value. We provide it. This is why we have a future. Mary Loomis. When I was beginning to research what I would be saying today, I thought, 
well, we're probably all going to say the same thing. <laughs> and yet I see the flow of what's happening, and I'm always quite amazed at uh, when people come together, what the greater majesty is. When I um, said that I would be delighted to speak today, I was rereading um, Chaos, Gleick's book, and also rereading The Secret of the Golden Flower. And if you were like me, when I began reading um, material of Jung's or something in the sciences, although my initial training was, a, was as a chemistry major when I started, so I had a lot of science, I pick up a book and I look at it and think, I've never read this before, and then I come to a note that I've read in the margin, you know. Or I turn the pages and something's underlined in blue ink and I say, good Lord, I've read it twice. But <laughs> reading it for the first time. But what struck me with chaos is that we use that term for something we don't totally comprehend. But chaos is not chaos if we have an Archimedean standpoint. We can see this as an evolutionary process. And I feel that what we're undergoing now in the Institute and in the collective is this emergence of a new, uh, a new pattern. But chaos in the Native American tradition that I studied, have studied for years, is called the creative energy of great spirit. So it is a blessing and a newness coming out. And just as June had said, pay attention and observe, I began to reflect on the observations that I could see around. Because another teaching that is said in this twisted hair tradition is that the future determines the present and the past only predicates the form. So that if we're looking at, in the chaos theory, the, the shape is continuing in a new way. The essence repeats. And I think the question is, what is the essence? What is the essence of Jungian psychology that is going to be moving forward in a new form. And I stopped and I thought, when I began training, there were um, maybe a shelf and a half full of Jungian books that were quite esoteric and uh, hard to come by. And now you have Jungian writers on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks. That was not true. When I first began um, looking at what was going on, I thought, what is the difference between Jungians and other traditions, other depth psychology traditions? What is happening here? What is the difference between Jungians and other traditions, other depth psychology traditions? What is happening here? And, of course, there is no such thing as accidents. I picked up my a little booklet from the Michigan Psychoanalytic Association, and they are in the midst of a huge split. One of the things that I thought was very amusing, they have a full-page ad, uh, because it's all very academic and very orderly, but now they have a branch that has split off called the Academy for the Study of Psychoanalytic Arts. And they say, I really keep this humorous, um, the exercise of professional discretionary judgment and the mutuality of agreements between analyst and analysand are the foundations of psychoanalytic analytic endeavor. And although there would be a strong adherence to confidentiality, they say 
there is a, you have to recognize there's an absolute incompatibility of psychoanalysis with healthcare. And <laughs> I thought, <laughs> they're agreeing with what's been said so far today. And they say the incompatibility of psychoanalysis with accreditation standards. The individual's desire to participate in psychoanalytic process for the purpose of self-discovery and self-determination serves as its own justification. And they say they don't want disease, illness, labeling. They want that out. But they say psychoanalysis does not require the keeping of medical records and does not, you're not bound by the duties to report or warn or protect, should not be in the hands of third party uh, payers. Well, I think that this is a reaction, but I, I thought it was very amusing that it's happening everywhere. That there is this feeling that what we've had is moving and disappearing, but where is it going? So as I was reading, and a nod to June when she said, Carl, you are fine, but I, I refer to him as a, an enlightened Victorian, and my friend Brenda said, and an acting out Victorian. <laughs> true, true. Uh, but we are not in that consciousness. That was 70 years ago. And we have a different perspective today to look at what he, what he wrote. He has a genius. The idea of the collective unconscious, the idea that we are all related. And I picked up um, one of the things, is this, this is a book um, by a Native American um, elder. And it's called Metakwiawasan. That means all my relations. And the interactive, the fact that consciousness is interrelated. If you enter a sweat lodge, for example, and you're going in, and that's a very, we call it a sweat lodge. They don't call it, they call it a purification lodge or a dreaming lodge. But as you enter, you must always say, you never do anything, only for yourself. It's done for you and all your relations. So as you enter into the darkness of the lodge, you either say in English, for all my relations, although it's you going in to go for the purification and the prayers, or you say metakriyasin, because you, do, you are not separate. You are very much related. So I looked also at this, and what struck me is he's talking about Jung at the very beginning. And he says that when he was forced to take a course, he needed a course to complete his doctorate. And the only thing available was Jungian psychology. And he later said, there are no accidents. I was meant to take it. And what he said was that he could not believe that what he was learning was exactly what happens in the traditional homes. The idea of what, the teachings, he said that he raised his hand and said, um, uh, this is, do you know what you're talking about? He asked his professor. Uh, this is traditional Dakota, Lakota philosophy and thought. These things you're talking about are practice at home. Some of these things happen in ceremonies. What I realized is one of Jung's gifts of his genius is the languaging and the concepts that we have. How many of you have heard the term persona or shadow all over the place? Everybody's talking persona and shadow. Everyone talks introverts and extroverts, thinking and feeling. I mean, the languaging is powerful. And I think that part of what we have is an awareness that we have to move in a new way. When I began studying to become a Jungian analyst, Jungian analysts were still on a pedestal. They didn't have to conform. Well, it was nice if you could get third-party payment, but that wasn't required. Licensure wasn't required. 
you could, as long as you wanted to and were called to do it, you could move in and become a Jungian analyst. And there was a great deal of respect and honoring of that profession. But what happens now? What I see happening in Chicago is that the area is becoming saturated with Jungian analysts. But it's not regional. And then I notice organizations like the Interregional Society that have regional training facilities, that they, are, they still have a lot of applicants because they are not sticking to the old form. When I trained and I traveled from, Chicago, from, from Detroit to Chicago, it was extremely, extremely difficult to be here every Tuesday night. We are excluding many people who would like training by sticking to the old model. What I find is that universities like Pacifica, the university out on the West Coast, that meets on a monthly basis and then one week during the year for, to establish more of a continuity in a residential program, since they've been accredited, um, I happen to be working with someone who's in her third year out there. She said that they are bursting at the seams with people wanting in, and they are highly qualified people. If you want highly qualified people to come into a training program, then you have to make it so that the training program doesn't require them to leave family or leave children or leave their profession. It's easier to do it on a weekend. I also see happening the increase in people who would be called Jungian psychotherapists. They're coming out now anyway. So why don't we involve and move forward in that regard? Then there are people who don't want to be Jungian psychotherapists, don't want to be Jungian analysts, but they have something, um, a massage therapist or a body worker, and they would like to take some courses. What are we offering for them? I think that when we are looking at what the future is holding, we have to say, how are we different? There's a very active, uh, as I quoted from here, uh, a psychoanalytic organization in Michigan, they offer all kinds of things. Where are we different? My sense is that we are different because we acknowledge the spirit. And I don't think we're here to become a substitute religion. But I think we are here because, as Jung talked about, that we carry the image of, in the self, that divine image, that divine spark. People are moving inward to reconnect on their own in the Gnostic way, to know themselves, that direct connection with the divine. I think that is our gift. I had a new client about, oh, a year ago who came in to see me, and she said she had worked with a local uh, psychologist and a local psychiatrist. The psychologist, a female, when she mentioned me, said, oh, well, Mary Loomis is a mystic. And then she mentioned it to the psychiatrist, and he said, Mary Loomis is a guru. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, that's where we are. I've got my credentials, like June said, my piece of paper that says I'm entitled to do this. But I'm also aware that that is our gift. When, when I began my training, there was a lot of popular discussion that Jungian analysis would lead to anarchy, that you would have people breaking down the structures and what has happened is that that's partially true because as individuals have claimed the authority for themselves, they're no longer willing to have someone else tell them what to believe or what to do. And 
But the paradox there that I find to be so true is that as I honor the integrity of someone else's soul, they're honoring their right to discover who they are, that there is in them ungendered a respect for someone else's right to be who they are. So there is a great multiplicity. Many of you know, or maybe you don't know, that Canada, the name for Canada really is an Indian term meaning village. And the Canadians have never tried to be a melting pot to make everybody into one big chaotic stew. They've always preferred to look at themselves as a rainbow, that with the whatever someone brings in, that it is an enrichment for all, and they're not trying to dampen down what the individual is. I think that where we are is that we are going forward and honoring the integrity of each person because each person is a reflection of us. That we cannot, we are not isolated, we are one family. And we have to move forward in that way, but we cannot, um, we can't shed our responsibility. There's a collective evolutionary process Wherever I talk to someone who's talking about their children or grandchildren, there is a general consensus that they're so much further ahead. I look at my children, and I have a 25-year-old grandson. I look at him, and they, their consciousness, I was nowhere near where they are. They're way ahead of where I was. There is a movement that we are a part of, but it's going to go on with or without us. But we have a part to play. And my hope is that we can become what my, my magical suit is today, that we are being called to be shamans. We're being called to move into that mystical realm more than ever. And when I was referenced a few minutes ago that I was reading The Secret of the Golden Flower, as I read that with my new eyes, because I've been studying Oriental medicine in Qigong for a year and a half, and I know it will be a process of I've been told in meditation it's a nine-year process. And then I read Jung's interpretation. I said, he's wrong. He doesn't get it. He's talking about the inability of the European mind to embrace the Oriental ideas and philosophies. Well, what I'm embarked on now is what's called the path of the twisted hair. And the path of the twisted hair means that you honor your own path, but you also move into all the other paths ones that speak to you with heart, and you learn from them. And individually, you stand accountable with your own body of knowledge. The twisted hairs would not cut their hair. They'd braid it so that you become a unique personality. I think that's what's being called for, is for us not to try everyone in a, a Jungian mode but to encourage the individuality of each person and to recognize and respect that the integrity of each person's soul will lead that person where that person is supposed to be. And so those are my thoughts. I don't have, um, I don't have a clear picture. I think I've had glimpses. I know what I don't want. I know that the collective is based of individual units, that it's drops of water that make a cup. And that as we're talking about the future, we're also talking about our future or our inner child that has to grow, that as the new beginnings. And so um, we're all related. The 
the way that I've been taught that is that there is one human family and that there are red, black, white, and yellow, and rainbow people. And the teaching is that we are to have open heart-to-heart -heart communication. And that is metakriyatsin. So for all my relations, thank you. Sue Rosenthal. You're right. We needn't have worried that we were all going to sound the same. We aren't at all. Several years ago, I heard Joseph Campbell give a talk at Northwestern. In fact, the Jung Institute may well have sponsored this particular lecture. In the crowded auditorium, I found seating only in the back of the balcony. I don't recall the topic of the evening, but knowing Joseph Campbell, it centered most likely on mythic dimensions of the human life journey. That night, I was absolutely riveted by something Campbell said. He posed three questions the individual must ponder, ask, and attempt to answer through the life course if his or her destiny is to be lived with consciousness. And those questions are these. What is it that I fear the most? Number one. Two, what fascinates me, intrigues me? What is the will of the wisp that leads me on? That's one, that's two. Three, what is it that will sustain me in my darkest hour? Easy questions, right? What Campbell did for me in that talk was to personalize the eternal questions and to let responsibility for the questing rest on the shoulders of the individual rather than on traditional institutions. And so did Jung in the post-World War II era when he voiced his deep concern about the fate of modern man, the individual being upon whom, he said, the infinitesimal unit upon whom the world depends. Throughout my years as a psychotherapist, the truth and the value of these three questions, what do I fear the most, what inspires me, what sustains me, continue to resonate. And as a Jungian analyst, I hear these queries, usually not spoken directly, but hovering in the air between myself and the analysand, often underpinning the urgency that guides some, a handful of the world really, to commit themselves to do depth work. Will it be so with the new millennium? Do we have any reason to believe that analytic psychology in any form will endure in the decades or centuries to come? Our vision is woefully limited. We are only able to look at the future through the rearview mirror, as Marshall McLuhan said decades ago. So what then is this hindsight? We know this much. What has been constant in humankind across the ages is curiosity. We humans are curious, and it seems that we're, we've become increasingly curious about our inner lives. Know thyself, to thine own self be true, the unexamined life is not worth living, and then the Zen version, the unlived life is not worth examining. An unexamined life is like an unopened letter. Ancient echoes, the wisdom of the ages, converging on the need to self-examine, to look deeply within. And in the past millennium, and especially the last century or so, our human gaze has turned increasingly inward as well as outward. The poet, the artist, the philosopher, the psychotherapist, strong bonds exist between these sleuths of the soul, and this bond is the need to confront environments and traditions, to question, probe, and prod, to stand apart from collective structures, and to trust 
immediate personal experience, the inner life and intimate dyadic encounter. And I think it will continue to be so in the epic to come. A profound and I believe enduring human desire is to know oneself and to be known by another deeply, compassionately, and in one's essence. And as depth analysts, we must be more than skilled technicians if our work is to endure. We must become the other needed by the few. And in to do so, we must each personally grapple with these three questions. For many of us, enlightenment comes most significantly through the intensity of relationship. Sitting with another engaged in what we have come to call depth work is soul work for the therapist as well as the other. In another era, perhaps, analysts would have been pastors, seers, wise women or men, shamans. Individuals will continue to come to such individuals for spiritual renewal, emotional nourishment, out of a longing to speak from the heart one to another, or for transformation, the desire to burst from the narrow cocoon life that one has been living and to emerge reborn in some altered form. This need, this yearning, will increase, not lessen, as the culture continues to grope and fragment. We will live longer, have more autonomy, more opportunities. The world of the future, I think, may not necessarily know of Jung. In fact, his name probably will never become a household word. But his ideas will continue to infiltrate and influence popular culture. He intuited that the old social structures and fundamental institutions breaking, were breaking down family life and community pat patterns fragmenting, and modern man left with his or her spiritual cravings, often unmet by traditional re religious forms, community life, or notions of family commitment. He sensed modern man in jeopardy. Depth work values the ruptures, the breaks in the rhythm of daily life. Today or tomorrow, the depressed, today or tomorrow, the depressive pit, the sleepless panic, the shadow-laden nightmare, may well be sealed off or salved by medication. In the future as now, many will go away grateful to be returned to the realm of the familiar. Others, always I remind you, always a few, will become curious about the autonomous and creative source in the psyche, this architect of the inner life, and seek to know the self in depth. The ruptures will be there in our outer life as well. The meaning of family life and kinship will, I believe, extend and expand, challenging all narrow tribal conceptions. It may be increasingly hard for the individual to project everything he or she does not want to know about self by foisting it off on someone else. When far out becomes close in, kin and neighbor, as the globe shrinks increasingly, we shall be forced to face personal shadow, to take responsibility for our own attitudes and prejudices. It is just these encounters with otherness, the world, in the world, or in the inner life, that can cast us adrift and will, I believe, ensure the, depth of, uh, the survival of depth psychology. I think there will be a progressive integration of the spiritual teachings of the East and West, and I credit Jung with knowing this almost a century ago. I agree also that he drew limitations where there may not be. Um, he urged us to see that both yin and yang or as, his, or as he chose to call it then, the masculine and feminine, are essential to balance. Balance in the psyche, balance in the universe. And that the psyche can and must hold these opposites. The more I become my individual self, 
the deeper the connection I realize with all other selves. Perhaps a real therapy will be one with vision, not only of the individual, but one that asks, how does the depth work of any particular person affect, perhaps even transform, not only the individual, but the world? The questions themselves are key and will always be there in the human psyche, a reliable source of angst and renewal. Roloff. If you ever have a temptation to doubt the power of synchronicity, I suggest you abandon your doubt. June's opening comments are echoed in headlines in the today's New York Times in the art section, in which there's a review of the Freud show at the Library of Congress, and the headline is Verbal versus Visual. And I thought I would just read um, these two comments from, from the article, that Freud was essentially an anti-visual person. He championed the talking cure rather than a looking cure. Freud had an intellectual defense against art and wanted to turn art into text. And then later, concerning the historic work of Charcot, as a visuel, a man who sees, who looks until he understands, as time went on, Freud distanced himself from Charcot's opticality. Once he began developing his own ideas, he concluded that seeing was shallow while hearing went to the depths. I don't have more to say on that. But far more profound is Leonard Schlein's new book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, The Conflict Between Word and Image. And this book, is an enormous gloss upon the remarks of June. At the end of the 20th century, at this cusp of time, we have added to our literacies the electronic sensibility, the extension of our nervous system into the hard drives of our computers. We have, at the same time, lost a profound sense of privacy and self-containment. What is known about us is available to anyone surfing the net. I had this experience recently of receiving a letter in which my family's history, my personal history, and the histories of my two sons were elaborated upon. For a fact, my curriculum VT is available to anyone who logs on to the proper website. To live with a sense of privileged privacy is a delusion at the end of this century. Privacy was a fact in the 19th century. It is an illusion in the 20th and 21st centuries, as proven in our national angst of political life. A dedicated zealot can sit across the street from an analytical office and hear everything said with perfect clarity. Our electronic sensibility was preceded by typographic sensibility, and before that, chirographic sensibility, and before that, the orality of culture in which all that was known was contained in the human imagination and performed by those whose responsibility it was to put the performance of psyche into cultural consciousness. 
We call these the bards, the shops, the rhapsodists, etc. Writing supplanted this. Printing altered the productivity of literacy forever. And by the 20th century, a great deal has happened, and most of it plugs into walls or is activated by batteries. Thank you very much, Marshall McLuhan. Our cultural globe lives with all these literacies simultaneously. Jung lived at the end and over the cusp. He lived at the end of the 19th century. His education was 19th century. He lived well into the 20th, halfway at least. But we must remember that the century of his nourishment and the century of his nurturing was the European sense of romanticism, the exploration of the romantics into the elaborate, intricate interiority of the self, a reaction against the enlightenment of the 18th century. Putting Jung in that context, it's interesting to reflect that as a matter of fact, Jung never made it comfortably into the 20th century. He lived with his values in the past, and he was without question a student of the manuscript culture, the medievalist, the alchemist, one who looked to the past for guidance and understanding of the universality of the human condition. He was never really comfortable with 20th century literature, art, music, for him, James Joyce and Pablo Picasso were not the inheritors of an enlightenment and the achievement of a refined ego. Their performances of the unconscious in culture was, to put it politely, an anathema to Jung. Great art was classical. Contemporaneous art was pathological. For example, he never understood the phenomenon of cubism, the visual representation of multiple perspectives simultaneously, which is exactly the experience of dream consciousness in every person. He never acknowledged the visual representation of his own inner experience. That's interesting to me. Jung did not live forward, but favored an achieved state of consciousness conveyed with rules and traditional values. It was his pursuit of the past which led him to the very doors of the collective unconscious. Contemporaneous expressions of the collective unconscious were contained in the consulting room and valorized within the consulting room but not necessarily experienced or valorized in the cultural edifices of concert halls, museums, and theaters. To consider what the future of psychoanalysis might conceivably be in the 21st century, we must be remembered of Soren Kierkegaard's observation, or as they say in Denmark, Soren Kierkegaard of Søren Kierkegaard's observation that life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards.
Now, thinking of that and calling your attention to the immediate past, I would like you to activate your right brain and I'm going to ask you a question. A question that Leonard Schlein asks in the alphabet versus the goddess. What for you are the two most famous photographs of the 20th century? Now you're in right brain. You're scanning. That is the activity of right brain to scan. It is the function of left brain to focus. These tensions between scanning and focusing, perhaps we can discuss a bit more later. Leonard Schlein's answer to this question, one of the two most famous photographs of the 20th century, are pictures that changed the way we experience ourselves and see ourselves forever. The first is the picture of the mushroom cloud over Hiroshima and the introduction of an incredible, awesome power of human destruction. And the second is the photo of the floating planet, Earth, taken by the astronauts, showing a very fragile, rather obscure planet in a universe of universes. These pictures separate all of us from any other previous time in human history. These are the images that propel us in, at some level of consciousness into the 20th, first century. Of all of the key terms and shibboleths, that might be used for our time, and the one which best leads us into the future of our work, or the work of some, the shibboleth certainly has to be the best and most encompassing term, interactive. Our children live in an interactive universe of engagement with their electronic games, hardware, and educational programs. The very word interactive separates most of us from the contemporary generation. But to put it in terms of the work, I have two clippings from the National Psychologist, which suggests new, new images of interaction for the 21st century. One begins, new computer technology opens doors for delivery of psychological services. And the first short lead sentence in the journalistic sense of things reads, psychologists are finding unprecedented opportunities to reach more people as the telephone and the computer become increasingly common tools to deliver care. The second headline is telecommun telecommunications with inmates of prisons, but we're all inmates of that little photo, remember? We're all on the same earth. Telecommunications holds promise for private sector psychologists. First sentence, telecommunications technologies are becoming a common vehicle for delivering mental health services. These technologies range in complexity 
from simple computer to video conferencing, to complete systems consisting of multiple cameras and computers with access and scramble a dozen or more phone lines to deliver a confidential, real-time, audiovisual product. At a more human level, it, in this present moment, there are examples of interactive work that talented and creative analysts are already exploring. I would first call to your attention the work of Marion Woodman, who uses a different paradigm of valuing and sensitively probing the nature of interiority with others in groups, exploring not only the nature of interiority, but the possibility for every person, and she works presently only with women, the potential to find the authority of one's own real, articulated voice. Not the abstraction of voice, but the utterance of a voice that has authority. Secondly, my personal work in performance, in which individuals of all ages perform aspects of personal text in varying degrees of shared audiences. Synchronistically, I recently wrote an article for an international organization that uh, is creating a book on performance in the 21st century. And my essay in that book is an extended report of an analysis prepared for performance by a young man, which is perhaps the ultimate in the performance of personal text. I have sat in audiences and seen the most intimate nature of dyadic communication shared with audiences of several hundred. And this performance has been <coughs> presented in the French Festival of Toronto, as well as in Los Angeles, San Francisco, <coughs> and recently in Chicago. At the end of this century, the performance, publication, and dissemination of personal text, of personal texts, is a cultural phenomenon worldwide. We are no longer pr private, interiorized individuals. As a matter of fact, in uh, the same New York Times this morning, uh, there is a very long article about those who are sharing the nature of their inner lives. And one remarkable volume, which I can painfully recommend, is a volume called The Kiss, which is a woman's report of her long incestuous relationship with her father. In short, the future of psychoanalysis is linked to a return to right-brained consciousness and the cultural shift from page to screen. From linear left-brain dominance to a subtler dance with right-brained numinosities. These dances are where our children live it's where they live. Jungians, by predisposition of the genius of Jung, are potentially those best prepared to engage the 21st century's challenges. 
if it is a return to the power of the image, <coughs> what Leonard Schlein has turned the return to the goddess, then it is no accident that this sullen craft of analytical psychology is being led by a legion of women who might very well be the carriers of culture into the 21st century. Men have not done too well at this. I had uh, an interesting reaction when I read an article in the New York Times last March and I thought this one statement by Robert Michaels, an analyst, was quite interesting. We are experts not in helping patients learn facts, but in helping them construct useful myths. We are fantasy doctors, not reality doctors. We don't help patients decide what is true it is important to show them that they can organize their experience in many ways, that they can become comfortable not about what happened in the past, but they can become comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. We are all asked, as we move into the 21st century, implicitly asked to increase our ambiguity tolerance not reduce it. People with low ambiguity tolerances will have a hard time in the new millennium. I recently read Peter Gay's remarkable book, The Naked Heart, The Bourgeois Experience from Victoria to Freud. And I thought this comment that he makes towards the end of the book was the most prescient comment regarding our own time at the end of this century. While he's writing about the end of the 19th, the world in which Freud and Jung functioned, it has a peculiar resonance to the time in which we are living. He writes, for the Victorian bourgeoisie, flooded by torrential, deep-running currents of change, the end of the century was beset with uncertainties. They had at their disposal two drastically divergent attitudes toward their inner life. De defensive discretion or bold exploration. Often enough, something of both. The appeal of the conservative mental style, the urge to keep things as they are, is profoundly embedded in human nature. It sustains the comfortable feeling that one may trust the directional signs culture has put up, that the trajectory of one's past virtually promises that the future will hold few surprises about one's place in the world or one's essential loyalties. But the 19th century, committed to innovation, offered challenges at once exhilarating and unsettling two established habits. It experienced dramatic movement in virtually all areas of life. The Victorians were compelled to cope with dazzling achievements in technology, to say nothing of the modernization of politics and fierce debates over the claims of nationalism. Rationality never registered more spectacular accomplishments, and yet, 
your rationality in many guises flourished as it had not for many decades. In 1904, in a single issue of the highbrow German periodical, Hochland, one writer ca cataloged the triumphs of technology, while another agonized over the revival of regressive mysticism. It's another version of right brain, left brain. The modern doctrine of individualism was a road to personal freedom and psychological isolation alike. The almost hysterical insistence of 19th century bourgeoisie on the sacredness of the family was a symptom masquerading as an ideal. It attests to the sense of cherished presuppositions in danger. That was written about the end of the 19th century. We have just had published a real assault upon the value of the family by Miss Harris entitled The Nurture Assumption. If you haven't read it, do so. It will wake you up, at least. You may not agree, but it will wake you up. My sense of the work, of the future of the work, is to find increasingly more expansive vessels in which it may be contained, for there is no one place in which the work can take place. There are multiple vessels for the multiple explorations of the individuation process. Our challenge is to live with tolerance, with the highest level of ambiguities. And when I lectured at Northwestern, this was always my last comment on the last lecture of a particular course. And never to let your eyes grow old and never to let your ears grow tired. So this is the opportunity for you to join the dialogue. If you have a comment, a question, observation, Whatever, this is the time. So the mic is right here, and you're welcome to join in any time. Well, I would like to begin by um, pointing out how important uh, Dan Lindley's comments were, because currently in Chicago at the Steppenwolf Theater, in a play by Charles Mee entitled The Berlin Circle, the child is in the center of the circle. And the significance of that cannot go unnoticed particularly in light of Dan's comments. Um, very stimulating time. Um, it, but what you just said about the play, and I've seen the play, reminded me too of um, an important image in the play, and that is everyone fighting over the child. And um, I think that can happen too. I, a, a theme. There are several themes that I have heard uh, throughout all of your talks. And one is um, valuing or having um, a sense of, of tolerance, of ambiguity or difference, and individuality versus group, and how to tolerate both. 
um, these opposites, union of opposites, uh, science and faith, faith and reason, um, saying that these things must intertwine, and then um, someone talking about the path of the twisted hair, the braid. Um, I um, was introduced to Jung shortly after uh, beginning law school and was very, um, very distressed by the um, limited view that reason was the answer to everything. And then I was introduced to a group of Jungian analysts who seemed to think that the self or um, faith, if you will, or um, right brain or individuality was the answer. And I felt that both were like prisons. And one thing that I've noticed since being in Chicago that makes me very excited about being here is the idea that we can, um, we're allowed to struggle with both. And both are valued. And while at the same time we're trying to build that bridge, ego self-axis, and strengthen it um, and value the self, we're also uh, being asked to be held accountable, to uh, give something back to the collective, um, to um, present ourselves in a way that um, uh, also requires a strong ego. And um, I guess I'm, I'm reminded again and again that um, someone said during the talk, I believe uh, it was Dan, the shadow reveals more knowledge of ourselves. And I think we can, the Jungian community can fall into a trap as well if we don't notice our own shadow. And uh, then we have, um, you know, maybe managed care appearing because uh, clinicians aren't being held accountable. Or we have um, Richard Knoll appearing, writing about um, the shadow side of, of Jung. And um, in maybe a distorted way, because we haven't tackled those things ourselves. So I just wanted to make that comment and maybe hear what you have to say about those things. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that I've encountered is are someone saying to me, how do I know when it's really uh, my inner self, my higher self, or an inner knower speaking to me? Because uh, we can get caught in traps of our intellect, of what we should do or what's the right thing. And two responses come to mind. Um, first of all, your higher self, the voice of your inner self, capital S, never makes you feel guilty, never makes you ashamed, never fills you with self-doubt. The voice is always clear, a statement of fact that just comes through in one of my instances after a series of problems. The voice came through and just said, you can't control everything. Well, that was pretty powerful because I like to control everything. The other is, uh, in the Native American um, way of looking at the human personality, they talk about a body brain and they talk about 
the mind-brain. They're not looking at a mind-brain distinction. So we're talking about your brain and your body-brain. Now, we would often use the body-brain as instinct. And the truth is, your body-brain never lies. You'll get a bit of information, and then your thinking brain will try to put it down. And one of the processes is beginning to respond to the, to the body-brain. And I think that um, we are in this area of paradox and talking about the yin and the yang or the right or the left brain. Again, it's going to start with each one of us. That reminds me of a line of Anne Sexton, the body never tells us lies about ourselves. We do. <laughs> you know, when we talk about right brain and left brain and conflict engendered by those opposite approaches, it's important to remember that neurophysiologists don't believe that the hemispheres operate independently of each other. You know, let, let's all remember about the corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres, yes. and one never operates independently of the other. And the other thought I had about Stephanie's remarks about um, the conflicts between these varied approaches is that if you take a higher position, if you imagine for a moment, get outside yourself, your individual self, and imagine a self that binds us together, perhaps there's a plan or a path or an intended evolution. And our individual conflicts are part of working out that evolution. And it's really important then to respect the person on the other side of the table when you're having the conflict because even though you're certain of the rightness of your position, that other person's position is absolutely necessary. Some of you talked about groups being part of the wave of the new millennium. How do you prevent the kinds of projections that sometimes happen in groups as with religious institutions from occurring in those groups? How do you keep it in an individuation process when you're likely to have within the group some sort of common projection on the leader of the group. Is that something that, um, it seems to me that'd be something that would be likely to occur. I thought I was done with all those pro projections, but something happened to me recently. Uh, one of the people I worked with said, um, I heard somebody say that you were a very wise woman, in fact, one of the wisest women she knew. And I felt quite embarrassed by this, but I smiled sweetly and we went on to other things. But after she left, I thought to myself, why is it that somebody would say this, that somebody would think it? What do I do that brings up this notion? And it occurred to me that Maybe it had to do with my <clears throat> recognition. I really don't know anything about this person, but the real wisdom about this person is in that person. It just hasn't been evoked. And that what I try to do is to get that person to look inside, to do this inner work, and when they do it, they find a real wisdom and they think I've done it for them. But uh, Lee here just said something very interesting and it's something that I concur with. He didn't say it to you, he said it to Lucy and me. 
that um, one of the best, it, words to the effect that one of the best things that an analyst can say to a person is, you know, you have these quiet spells where, where the person doesn't say anything and you know something's going on. And you say to him something like this, what don't you want to talk about today? <laughs> Could you come in on that, please? <laughs> June, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Which uh, happens to be the title of a remarkable book on male depression. I don't want to talk about it. And I recommend that the author is Terence Real, R-E-A-L, Terence Real. I don't want to talk about it. Studies in male depression, it's had a tremendous impact. Men don't want to talk about their depressions. They want to talk about reconstituting the ego for greater triumphs in the world. To enter a depression is to to put it in the words of Conrad Aiken, you go to the verge. And in this poem, there's another voice that says, well, what did you see? And finally, the reply in this long poem is, I saw myself, and thus I saw God. The answer, no question asked. The power of resistance is simply enormous and how to enter and and without threatening the the reason for the resistance but to ask ask what is it we aren't talking about is perhaps what we should be asking here about the 21st century too One of the things that occurred to me while we were up here talking about how the opposites exist and how they really are together, but we just see them differently. And one way, Lee, that we the things that we have not talked about is um, the sexual revolution or the sexual acceptance of each of us. I just saw the play Gross Indecency, which is about Oscar Wilde and his trials. And I think in the new millennium, we've certainly moved way far away from where we were in 1920 uh, about the gay issue and about the humanness and the masculine and feminine of all of us. And the other thing is how we're all becoming one race that there are more and more unions of races and different faiths and how that will change the new millennium. I'm still back with the question that came from the floor about how do you stop projection or what will happen in group setting. Well, if you think about it, a dyad is a group of two. Projections happen between in, in any relationship. I think the task will become, will become, as we become for hope, hopefully more aware, to bring them out uh, to realize that in a group what you have is multiple projection screens, really. And the task is to get to see them and to get 
through one's projections to seeing and feeling the real person behind them. Yeah, I think that it was a, it's a very important question that you asked because it's the very question that was at the foundation of why Jung was not very um, enthusiastic about group work. And the way I think about it is that the consciousness in the room is unlikely to be any higher than the consciousness of the most conscious person. So the importance of who the group leader is and what that individual's consciousness is like and how it's evolved is absolutely crucial. And I think what makes it even more difficult is that when you decide that you're going to lead a group, there's almost a presumption that you are conscious enough, you're evolved enough to see through the projections of the people who will be members of the group. But of course, nobody, nobody is free of, um, of their own projections. But certainly, you want the most evolved person possible to lead the group. And how you make that decision, uh, I don't think there's a, there are any clear guidelines. It certainly is unlikely to be the most charismatic person. Um. I'm a rare Jungian. I've had 16 years of training as in, in group psychotherapy. Um, and my experience has been that I was not a very um, charismatic person, but I always worked with someone else, okay, because I'm a body worker and we would do holding and regressive work. And um, the way that we worked together as a group was that everyone, each person was responsible for their own work. So at the beginning of a group, we would, everyone would make a, a contract about what they were going to work on. And um, at the end of the group, we would check out and everyone, we would all talk about um, how our contract with each other went. Um, and my experience was that, that group members were uh, often wiser than I was at, at calling me on my mistakes and my projections and that in that setting we would be able to talk about those things and process them. But in that group room were also sand trays, art material, and over the years that I did groups, people always bring their, bring their dreams and as they worked, uh, they began, began to get deeper and deeper in touch with their own individuation process and be able to help each other and support each other in that. I'd like to mention something about groups also. Uh, <clears throat> I'm interested in Jungian work, but I have no training in it, whatever. I have a lot of admiration for all of you. But I was uh, trained in um, just plain counseling uh, with the ordinary student, our friends, people. And the, the man who helped us the most was the man who said, we are all facilitators when we enter into a group. We each one have a responsibility to be open and listening and responding from the heart to one another. And so I really think that um, union work could probably do well in a group setting with the right attitude and spirit. Uh, in line with the, uh, the, the uh, tendency of the uh, panel to speak of uh, transitions from earlier uh, eras to a future one, uh, I would like uh, to ask uh, 
at least uh, uh, the ones that I know might have background of interest in this area. Uh, uh, I'll just, I'm sorry if I do injustice to anyone else, June Singer, Daniel, Lindley, Lee, Roloff, and Lucy Klein, what uh, their thought might be about taking advantage of the uh, few, perhaps, uh, who value uh, the insight of uh, William Blake. I just had the opportunity to finish a book of uh, Harold Bloom's, which is out of print, uh, which gives, uh, namely, uh, Blake's Apocalypse, which gives a marvelous uh, summary, so to speak, uh, of Blake's work. And it seems to me, if, if the Jungians do not, uh, and as I say, the few surviving uh, uh, luminous uh, intellects who are interested in this area uh, do something to uh, value uh, the, the work of Blake uh, as it might well apply to uh, the new millennium. Uh, it might not get done. Uh, that is, I would appreciate any reactions to that idea. I'll say a little bit about Blake. I think what made him so very different and great is that he was a poet, a painter, a printer. He had visions, he had deep insight, and uh, he wasn't very popular <laughs> in his day, but he had a vision of another level of reality, a symbolic level, which I think was very well developed. He saw the different aspects of the psyche and was able to personify them into characters of his poems and people of his alternative universes. He broke through conventional thinking in an imagistic way. And I think he provided uh, one of many very good models for Jungians. Oh, just, just one thing. Uh, I mean, I would defer, June, to you on Blake in any circumstance uh, with your book, which I think is wonderful. Uh, the thing that strikes me about Blake is that he, he was, as June says, a visionary, uh, a genius, a remarkable person who lived his life in, in a curious kind of obscurity, not, not totally obscure, because people did know what he was doing and he was read, but, but that did not bother him. He went on. He carried on in his life. And I think one of the things that's happened now is that achievement is so wrapped up, tied together with narcissism, that the notion of an enormous life lived the way Blake lived his is unimaginable to people who are really asking themselves all the time where they can be visible in the world. And I think there's a, there's a destructiveness about that kind of uh, notion of uh, fame or, or something. Blake, Blake was never involved with that. He was bigger and better than that. Sorry for the trivial notion, but I think it's important in a way to look at the non-narcissistic side of, of a great person. I recall one statement that June wrote in her book about Blake is he would go on the inward journey. 
he said that he always made sure first that both feet were firmly wrapped around the roots of an oak tree. With all due respect to those comments, there's a wonderful play that's never really been produced in the United States. It's been produced in the United Kingdom called Blake. And there's a dramatic moment in the play where Blake's wife comes in and puts this bowl on the table. And the line is as follows. Blake looks up and says, after the noise, woman, what is that? And his wife replies, to remind you, William, there is no food in the house. <laughs> um, we have very few poetry majors in American colleges and universities. We have tens of thousands of radio, television, and film majors in art schools, universities, across our country and in the world. As a matter of fact, in May I'll be attending a conference on such things in Wales. What's interesting is that the same impetus that created a Blake creates a filmmaker today. The desire to be poetic, to, make, to be the maker and shaper of images, which is all poema means, that impulse is carried by the visual artists, whether they're video artists at the Museum of Contemporary Art, whether they are filmmakers in small independent film festivals, and thank God for Robert Redford and the Sundance Group that has funded remarkably the intelligence and sensibilities of young people in our culture, that that energy to orchestrate images, remember that a film can orchestrate past, present, future virtually simultaneously, as a matter of fact, there's a new film out in which a young brother-sister enter a television set and uh, participate in the sitcom of the 50s. And in the process, they reveal the hypocrisy of those folks in the 50s. That's an imaginative leap of a filmmaker. Uh, the Truman Show is probably one of the great films of our time. Because in The Truman Show, what is revealed to us is that maybe we're just living in a set. Maybe we're being manipulated by some director, brilliantly played by Ed Harris. And that when we finally bump up against the edge of reality, as Truman does, and realizes that he's been a victim of somebody else's desires to create something, that narcissistic issue that Dan is talking about. He walks up the steps out of the, out, of the, uh, out of the set, and he stands before an open door, and what's beyond the door is utter darkness. And the director pleads with him not to leave the set. And Truman goes and walks into the void. Pretty powerful stuff. Pretty powerful poetry. Well, this morning I've had the pleasure of listening to many very learned and well-reasoned comments about the future of the Jungian movement. 
And I must say that your goals and aspirations are most admirable. But there seems to be a very critical factor that was never even hinted at as being a matter of concern. And that is the ability of the Jungian movement to achieve any of these goals they like to talk about. Now, I'm very much concerned with this, and I'll try and tell you briefly why I am. I started to study Jung before his works had been collected by Bullinger. It tells you how far back it goes. <laughs> As Princeton University Press started to come out with these works, I left a standing order with Crocs. Whenever a new one comes out, get it for me. And I collected them over a period of 10 to 15 years that it took them to print them all. I have read them all. I have recently reread them all. Since I joined this institute a few years ago, I have discovered that in the last 50 years or so, there have been hundreds of books published by certified Jungian analysts supposedly expounding on and developing Jung's thoughts. So I figured, well, I should know a little bit about this, so I read a few dozen of these works by prominent professional Jungians. I've had to stop reading them. I, I can't take it anymore. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, there are some things in there that describe clinical experience, which I find very good. But for the most part, when I compare this, what I call the secondary literature to Jung, whose writings I still find fascinating, it's their triviality that comes across. And in some cases, it's not even confined to triviality, it's confined to gross misconceptions of what Jung was talking about. And it's not just the books that I read, because I find that the ideas expressed in these books are quite representative of the approach to Jung taken in the classes taught at this institute, which I don't take many more of, by the way. I took a lot of them in the last three or four years. It, uh, I do not see the understanding and the skills, not of this, just this esteemed panel, but of the Jungian movement in general as developing and advancing. If anything, I see it retarding. And then I hear all of these you know, beautiful statements today about the need for Jungian thought and applications and the things that they hope to do. And I'm sitting back there wondering, yeah, that's great, but who's going to do it and how? And I wonder if any of you have uh, made any observations similar to mine. Have you ever been presented with concerns like this before? And uh, maybe you could tell us, quite frankly, how do you think 
there's 100 or 200 or 300 volumes that have been published by Jungian professionals in the last 50 years compares to Jung's works, and what have they done with it? Thank you. That's a very provocative statement, and I will rise to the bait. <laughs> I think that many of us, because of our background for various reasons, have studied Jung long and hard, and we've immersed ourselves in the secondary literature, forgetting, with respect to the secondary literature, that this is all one's person's or another person's or another person's interpretation of what Jung said. I think we miss the point if we think the object of Jung's psychology was to get people to reiterate Jung. Jung did not reiterate anybody. He took a little here and a little there, but when he first went to Vienna to join the Freudian circle, all his colleagues said to him, you're crazy to go with that man. That man is, is so far out. You're on the path to becoming a good psychiatrist. You're foolish. Well, Jung went anyway because he wanted to know what this was, go what all this was that was going on in Vienna. So when he got there, he studied and read and talked to the people and absorbed what they knew. But then he came to his own conclusion, which was, this is not the way I want to go. By that time, Freudian psychology had swept over the world pretty much, at least in Europe. And people said to him, you're leaving? You're crazy. You should stay with this movement. This is the coming thing. But Jung didn't try to reiterate Freud. He studied, he learned from it, he took what he could that he found useful, and he went on to develop himself. Jung made a lot of mistakes in his life, as have we all. But he also had some very strong ideas. I don't think he wanted us, and this is my interpretation, to winnow out his great thoughts and reproduce them. I think what he wanted us to do, and he made it pretty clear, was to look into our own selves and to interpret for ourselves what is our path. And he gave permission to be not young, but to be you, to be yourselves. And maybe since our time is about up, I could close with a response to the question, who is going to do it? Who is going to spread this gospel of being who you are and getting out there in the world and being truly you? And the answer to that is, you are, all of you. It's your task, and it's our task, to be who we are, to do our own creative job, and not to go around uh, trying to get authority by reading and memorizing the texts of others. Thank you.
podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.